Hang on for another interview with an exceptional woman, pitched to me by her husband named Bert, who told me that he's trying to moderate any boastfulness about her because she has done so many incredible things with her life. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. The woman you are about to meet is in the business of shouting about her clients from the rooftops. She's a national publicist who specializes in authors and books, art, lifestyles, design and architecture, movies and museums. She's worked with a former president of the United States and his first lady. She's worked with Hollywood royalty, Fortune 500 CEOs and unknowns whose stories are so compelling, they become movies. Like the documentary she is working on right now with author Stephen Callahan, called Adrift, 76 Days Lost at Sea. Most of all, today's guest is a storyteller, and I can't wait to hear how she got to where she is today. Her name is Sandra Goroff, and this is her story. Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Candy. Nice to be with you. Very successful people, Sandy, trust you with their stories. What is it about PR, being a publicity person, that inspires you? People always ask me that, and I always say, it's love. Falling in love with a project and a person and being inspired by them and wanting, as you do, to share their story. You are very well known and the principal of your own agency now, SandraGaroff.com. But take us back to the early days of your career when you were just learning your craft. Well, I was scared. I was really frightened. You know, Candy, a lot of people in the world of publishing have connections. They have trust funds, and they have parents who know people, and they go to Ivy League schools. And I had none of that. And I like to say that I got my job in the most unlikely of ways. I sent my resume to personnel. Can you imagine a more unlikely way to get a job? Although I laughed louder than anyone in the office, somehow I did okay. When I was thinking about what you would ask me and thinking what were the secrets in the beginning, I think I didn't really know any better. I assumed mediocrity was not an option, that given the fact that I was given this fabulous chance, nobody helped me. It was so unlikely that I got that job. I was going to do the best I could. If they wouldn't let me into the front door, I would crawl up through the cellar stairs. Take me back to that first job. Were you working in a publishing house? Talk to me about that. No, I never had a job in publishing. I had uh, worked for an artist named Sidewalk Sam, myself and one other person in the attic of his house in Brookline. And our big line was, I mean, how do you get on the phone and describe somebody who draws on the sidewalk? And my friend and I decided we would say, it's a bold visual event that tells your story. And then we would add, the possibilities are endless. Our show is heard around the world, and of course, it's also heard on radio in Boston. Tell everybody who Sidewalk Sam was. He was an artist, a very talented artist, who became well-known for reproducing famous artwork on the sidewalk with chalk. So after you work for somebody like Sidewalk Sam, what comes next? I was just at that point, I was probably just doing what a lot of kids are doing out there now, is sending out resumes and thinking about what it is I liked and what sort of environment would interest me. And I was a reader and I did love books, so I sent my resume to personnel. And what happened? 
they called me. It was really amazing. Now, when I went in for my job, I really didn't have any experience. So I made a portfolio and basically got up during the middle of the interview and walked my then boss through it. You know, I basically put on a performance and appearing much more confident than I really was. My sister told me to wear stockings. It was 97 degrees out. I was very scared. And I still, to this day, I think back on those early years, and I didn't show it, but I was scared, and I felt out of my league in many ways. You worked for Houghton Mifflin. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to work for a big company like that, because you're automatically going to be exposed to some pretty high-level offers. You are, but I would also say that I learned other things at Houghton Mifflin. I learned how to drink a martini. I had a charge card to lockovers, <laughs> which was fabulous. Not there anymore, but boy, was that a cool uh, restaurant that, in Boston. That was. And I learned how to eat sushi and use chopsticks. But beyond that, <laughs> I felt so overwhelmed in the beginning. I figured the best thing I can do is just stare at a person and ask them questions. If I asked them questions, I wouldn't feel like I was on the spot. What are the key attributes of a great publicist? Persistence. For myself, I'd have to say insecurity. If I hadn't been insecure, I would have expected things to come to me. And the fact that I didn't have that experience made me work and try that much harder, which segues into the subject of, does a publicist accept no for an answer? Well, that's the myth. And people would say, I even talked to an old assistant of mine this morning, trying to get ideas for you. And she says, well, you, you never accepted no for an answer. And that's actually not true. She reminded me of one particular story where I was trying to reach a producer on Fresh Air, the national radio show. And the producer, who I knew well, did not return my call. I found out there was a pizza place across the street from her and sent her a veggie pizza and bribed the guy at the pizza place to write on it you forgot to call me, Sandy Goroff, with my phone number. Now, the moral of the story is she did call me, but she did not book the author that I was pitching. But she never forgot you. Probably not. So I think being memorable might be one of those attributes of being a pretty good publicist. You've worked on some incredible projects, and I'm just picking a few. The list is just so very long. Elvis biographer Peter Guralnik wrote Last Train to Memphis. This is a quote from him. Open Sesame and the Red Seas parted. I have never gotten so much exposure. Tell me about that project. Well, Peter is a lovely person, one of the nicest people I've ever worked with. How would I get rejected calling about Elvis? You know, there you go. However, the Boston Globe did reject the story. Elvis wasn't local enough, but that's beside the point. There's some of the crazy things that happen when you're pitching. But Peter Goralnik and I connected, actually through a dentist. We worked together on two books, both of his Elvis books, and had an online birthday party for Elvis Presley, and we had a great time. It was a very memorable project. Former President Jimmy Carter, and then another project with Rosalind Carter. President Carter, a lovely man, just really lovely. I woke up that morning, and I had a terrible cold. He was at the Parker House in the presidential suite. I was not going to cancel my day, nor did I want to get him sick. I did go. He still hugged me and kissed me, even though I was sneezing and Kleenex and everything. 
he was a lovely person. I do remember that he wanted to read every newspaper, and I was to not interrupt him. And he had about six newspapers, so if an interview came in early, I was to wait. And he had to finish reading whatever newspaper. But he was lovely. I found through the years, and I think what I learned, too, is that many really powerful people who've accomplished so much are very gracious, don't talk about themselves, which is really refreshing because after a career in publicity, you've really had your share of egomaniacs. They love me in Cleveland. I really was influenced. It's as though I had another education at Houghton Mifflin observing these people and finding them really interesting. Well, here's someone that I know you had firsthand experience with, Hollywood royalty, as in the actor Kirk Douglas. That was quite a treat. I mean, how many chances in my life would I have a chance to even talk to Kirk Douglas? And as you know, I did set up an interview with the lovely Jordan Rich and sat in on that interview. Sometime during that interview, Kirk asked me how I was. You know, he liked women, and he wasn't ashamed to show it. He asked me how old I was. I didn't really want to tell him at the time, so I said something. I eventually told him, I'm not going to tell you. And he said to me in that voice, you're too old for me. (laughs) And I I like telling that story. That was quite a treat. What kind of a comeback do you need to have when someone says that? I don't know. I looked at Jordan. (laughs) Jordan looked at me and we thought, oh, my God, I didn't know what to say. I just let Jordan take it over. Tell me how you were involved in projects for Jane Goodall. I have so much respect for her, one of the world's most famous anthropologists of all time. You know, Candy, when you ask me about these people, several things come to mind. I think about their book. I think about how much people admire them. But I also think about the funny or unusual things. Jane complained to me the morning she was in Boston that her eyes hurt from the lights from being interviewed. I ended up taking her to my mother's eye doctor who wouldn't fit anybody in, but he would make time for Jane Goodall. I didn't let him forget that. And anyway, she was diagnosed with a corneal ulcer. And as I say, we bonded as her pupils dilated in the waiting room. Anyway, the, the, the morning went on and on and required uh, several different medications where the limousine had to go to the mass eye and ear and get the medication and so on and so forth. She was fun. <laughs> you know what? I'm, well, I, I got to tell you, though, and for the audience, you know, I, this is when I always wish that we had a video camera so that you could see sort of the chemistry that's happening between Sandy and me, which is these are true, real stories. And I can already tell that the reason why these people adored working with you is because you listened and you acted and you did memorable things to make them feel heard and understood. That's how you make a connection. You know, even a famous person can be afraid. Even a famous person can be insecure. And self-conscious and and all the above. And needs to be told, you did a great job. Or tell me what happened. Or why do you feel like that? I would say when you said, well, what does a publicist do? And a lot of it is that sort of emotional hand-holding and feeling somebody's sort of reaching out and connecting on a human level and understanding and putting them at ease. Then there's the documentary, Adrift, 76 Days Lost at Sea. It's set to be completed late this summer, fingers crossed. It's based on a true story by Stephen Callahan. You were the book's publicist many years ago. You became friends with him. You're now an associate producer on the documentary. What an exciting opportunity. I will say my career has been almost 40 years, 
And in that 40-year span, I've worked on many books, and Stephen is my favorite author, and Adrift, 76 Days Lost at Sea, was my favorite book. I was a young publicist starting out at Houghton Mifflin. I was given a manuscript about a young naval architect who was sailing from Europe back to the United States. His boat was hit by a whale, and his boat began to sink. He had to get on a rubber raft. He had to employ his humor, his common sense, his technical ability, and he survived aboard that raft for 76 days using everything he possessed as a human being. So by the time I met him, I was pretty excited and just so impressed with what he'd accomplished. That was 1986. Now we are here in 2022, and I was contacted by some people who wanted to uh, make a documentary about Stephen's adventure. By the way, the documentary has a website, which is 76days.net, and 76 appears as the numerical numbers 76. And anybody who wants to see the trailer or wants to find more about the documentary uh, can go online and do so. In radio, we sit in a music meeting and we listen to new music deciding what we're going to play. A trained radio ear can hear a hit. How do you know when the project you are working on has wings? You don't. And that's the magic. You have a sense in that the publisher will do certain things that they will do for a big bestseller. They will print a lot of books. They will do advertising. They will send the author on the tour. But all of those things can take place and the book can still bond. So there's a little something floating in the air, a little magic. It's word of mouth. It's fate. It's whatever it is. and Good timing? Yes, good timing, too. What's going on in the world? And things happen. Relationships are everything in every business. You are respected by journalists at the New York Times, USA Today, LA Times, Boston Globe, top-rated TV news and talk shows like Good Morning America, The Today Show, The Tonight Show, Oprah. Their producers take your calls. Even if you have to send them pizza every once in a while, how did you build these relationships? I hope I by telling the truth. For instance, if a producer called me up and it's somebody I had was building a relationship with, and I really didn't think that author I was assigned was all that interesting, I might actually close my door and tell them the truth or give them suggestions or basically return their call, common sense kind of things. You don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to know. You don't have to go to Harvard or Radcliffe, return the call, be pleasant to talk with. Or as my father used to say, do what you said you were going to do when you said you were going to do it. That too. You are also involved in art publicity projects for huge museums. And I know that this stems from your love of art and the fact that you are also a very successful photographer. You're the author of Solitary Soul, a fine arts photographer in your own right. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yes. My mother was an artist. My mother was a painter. And I think uh, that artistic thread runs in the genes. I'm a storyteller. I'm a storyteller both, and so are you, Candy. I mean, that's the essence of what you do here. We tell stories. I tell stories in several different ways, through books and through my photographs. The truth is, you're not going to believe this, but I really don't like to talk. (laughs) 
which is not a good thing to say when you're a publicist and you've made your whole career on the telephone. So I love the freedom that photography brings me because I can capture my feelings or capture somebody else's feelings or see a mood or a place or something that really moves me and be able to do it without words. Our childhood shapes and it molds us. You were just talking about your mother. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Where are you from, Sandy? And paint me a picture of what life was like in your house. I grew up in Brookline, which was a very different place when I grew up than it is now. We lived across the street from the school. My mother was overprotective. My father was loud. You know, if I started to sing in the house, my father wanted me to shut all the windows. I once taught kindergarten which had a lot to do with working with authors, make things fun, use bright colors. One of the women who had come in to work with the kids was Mary Gaines. She was Donna Summer's mother. And she would come in and she'd bring a bag of rags and fabric and teach the kids how to sew. Mary and I both liked to sing. And so she came in and we became friends. When I told her that my father closed the windows, she told me, that her husband, Andrew, did the same thing with Donna, because they always sang in the house, and Andrew was always embarrassed, and he was always closing the windows. The moral of that story is... Let your kids sing. You got that right. (laughs) You attended Emerson College in Boston, known for its incredible music, writing, arts programs. What was your major? And tell us a little bit about what your college experience was like. Uh, I lived at home. I took the streetcar. And I told you, I did not have a privileged, fancy upbringing, though I certainly was well taken care of. I majored in, and this is bizarre, well, I did major in elementary education. I don't know why, because my mother said, you need to be a teacher. Because at that time, mothers wanted their daughters to be teachers or nurses. One day, my mother said to me, I think I won an award for something, and she said, I wanted to call you and tell you thank you so much for not doing what I told you to do. So, but you know what? I do believe, too, though, that we do live our lives in chapters. And I don't think any job is ill-spent because I think we learn something from every single job. Even you say you learned from being a kindergarten teacher to use bright colors and get people's attention. And that's worked really well for you as a publicist. <laughs> All the people that we meet influence our lives and how we grow professionally and personally. And I have these kinds of conversations, or I did over the years, with kids who work for me, you know, about gracious reciprocity and how to thank the people that you've worked with. That's the other thing I would recommend to kids. Have gratitude. Tell the people that were there for you that you appreciated their efforts. You have had the experience of teaching graduate courses and going back to your alma mater at Emerson in both book marketing and in promotion. You had just mentioned the importance of gratitude that you try to teach to young people. Mm -hmm. What's your message to these students when you stand in front of them today? The one thing I said every class was that mediocrity is not an option. If everybody around you is not paying attention, not doing their job, taking it lightly, that shouldn't influence your conduct and your willpower and enthusiasm. And as I say, appreciating and being conscious of the people who help you along the way. What do you wish you knew when you first got started as a junior publicist during those early days, maybe when you were promoting Sidewalk Sam or when you just got hired at Houghton Mifflin? I was thinking about that this morning. I think learning that you can say no. I didn't know that. 
I think you had to have an answer. For, I think you had one had to know everything, and two had to have an answer for everything. And I, I realized I don't have to know. Somebody asked me a question I don't know. I'll say I don't know, but I'm happy to try to find out. In some instances, I couldn't. So I think I would uh, hope, as in life, that I would be more comfortable in my own skin, that I wouldn't struggle so much trying to define myself in an environment in which I wasn't like everybody else. I think in the end, being myself worked to my advantage. Next few questions I ask everyone who sits where you are today. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I'm very persistent, as evidenced by the pizza story. You have to be willing to push something as far as you can without being obnoxious and by still maintaining a good relationship. But at a certain point in time, you have to be willing to say, okay, thank you for your time. I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you, and I look forward to talking about another project down the road. And in that way, you preserve the relationship by not pushing too hard. Right. Best piece of advice you've ever received, and it can be a personal piece of advice or professional. Pick your battles. So true. You have an incredibly large body of work here. You've worked with so many people in so many fields so successfully. What are you most proud of as you look back, kind of in the rearview mirror, at an incredible career that continues today? I think I'm uh, most proud of the relationships I formed. It isn't what show I got somebody on or how many books they sold or how many photos I took. It would be the connections I made with people and how I touch their lives, how they touch mine. These are the, the things that I cherish and have value for me. Final question. At this moment in this chapter of your life, what does success mean to you? To me, it's about relationships. It's about a certain peace of mind, accepting the things you've done, having gratitude, and still having enthusiasm for what you'd like to do. I'd like to say thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you, Candy. And that's the story behind her success. My thanks to Bert Peretsky for his suggestion that I interview his wife, Sandy Goroff. Great suggestion, Bert, and I'm so glad I did. What a story. Find out more at sandragoroff.com. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile, so if you have someone in mind, please let me know. Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. Please give us a follow on your favorite podcast platform and also tell your friends and your family about the show. Leave a review if you'd be so kind because I will have a new inspiring story for next week. When we share our stories, no matter where we are in this great big world, we really do provide a roadmap toward success for the next woman. So, what's your story? I can't wait to hear it.